Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 10th, 2021. I should say this is the 20th anniversary of the day I met my wife Ayala, just so just so everybody knows. Uh, I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary and husband to Ayala, and with me as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So on this illustrious anniversary occasion, there's lots of little bits of news. Uh, We have the end of the infrastructure negotiation between Joe Biden and West Virginia Republican Senator Shelley Moore. I believe it's Capito. Could be Capito. I don't really know how it's pronounced. I've never heard it pronounced. and uh, a bunch of other things. Um, I just want to talk about the senators from West Virginia very quickly, uh, Manchin and, uh, and and Capito. So uh, Capito is obviously negotiating in some sense, or has been negotiating in some sense, as some kind of stand-in for Manchin. Uh, some odd way in which Manchin is being negotiated with, Biden showing that he's reasonable enough that that Manchin might go along with his proposals. I, I, I honestly don't know. I'm going to propose this theory to you very quickly. Joe Manchin has saved the Biden presidency. Everyone's yelling at Manchin. It's not fair. There's a piece in Politico by some former congressman who was like, you know, what's the greatest thing ever is to vote for something that's unpopular and get voted out because then you really, a, a, a noble person who's done something really noble uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats uh, took this uh, five-seat majority in the House and this non-majority in the Senate and decided uh, to reinstitute the New Deal. Um, and the uh, check against their ambitions turns out to be two, really one Democratic senator who was willing to take the heat for obvious reasons, Joe Manchin, because he is the he is one of the two representatives in the Senate of a state that went for Donald Trump uh, for by 39 points and therefore um, can shoulder whatever political burden there is. Uh, Biden got the CARES Act. The CARES Act has had problematic consequences, particularly in terms of labor and labor shortage and the fact that people are staying unemployed in order to collect federal benefits, which is now, I think, unassailably factually accurate. Um, and all of that, uh, the further ambitions are clearly going to be retarded by Joe Manchin standing in for other Democratic senators who might find it necessary to vote against the president to save their own political futures, or indeed because they think that the Democratic agenda is bananas and psychotic uh, in terms of spending. Um, so the, the the great ambitions are being thwarted uh, and this is the path to Joe Biden's second term is having these great ambitions being thwarted. That's my proposal. L- let's uh, let let's explore it. In what way? In what way is Joe Biden not served by the fact that he can't that he can't get this agenda that he did not run on through the Senate and the House? Noah. Well, I don't know. It sounds reasonable enough on its face to the point where I don't even have anything to add. It's. It's a, a proposition that I think I subscribe to. Um, yeah, that's it. I, I literally don't have a single thing to add to that. Well, 
you could say theoretically, uh, this is theoretical because I, because I agree with you and Noah here. Um, he's hurt in the sense that <clears throat> he failed and it's never good to uh, be seen to fail to, to get what you want. Uh, that looks uh, like you're weak and unpersuasive. Okay, but you know he hasn't failed in this sense, which is there is no infrastructure proposal, there is no infrastructure bill before the Senate and the House, and there is no whatever on earth you want to call this the, the thing that isn't just the infrastructure, you know, uh, whatever the American let's save everybody by by pouring money on your head bill. Um, those bills were have never been crafted. There was a budget proposal, right? That was the subject of his speech before Congress. But it's a budget proposal without, you know, 2,700 pages of specifics as far as I know. And therefore, he hasn't failed because nothing's been put up for a vote. Everything that's going on here is notional. And what he's getting is, well, I mean, we had the we had notional ideas here, and you know, you know what, uh, we're, they're not going to go forward. But there's a there is a risk from a messaging perspective. One is that he he finds himself spiraling into the morass of every week is infrastructure week. Remember that from the Trump <laughs> Trump administration. But worse, I think he can he can be criticized if they ever got themselves organized and had a consistent message about Biden and stopped focusing on Trump by the Republicans for for claiming he was going to be this, you know, sweeping, transformative FDR-like, you know, agent of change, who immediately caved the minute someone in his own party pointed out how much his plans cost, who could, they could, the, the, he'll argue the obstruction came entirely from the Republicans. But in fact, I mean, it's very clear that there are plenty of moderate Democrats who didn't like this level of spending that Biden was proposing. So, I mean, he he looks, I, I agree a little bit that he could be portrayed as a bit weak and unsuccessful in his efforts to bring all the Democrats around his, you know, build back better message. Who's going to make that case? Right, exactly. Be, no, I mean, it, it, Democrats, if the you know, the proposition here is re-election by, you know, September of 2024, presuming he's on the ballot, no one's going to make that case. My, my point is there, there, there are a cascading series of elections, local, uh, congressional, senatorial, presidential. Um, and politics has now gotten nationalized to the extent that um, even local elections are now going to be seen as proxies for national results, particularly uh, in the Republican Party, where there is obviously uh, a fight that isn't that much of a fight, probably, for the soul of the party and its future that will be told in things like special elections for secretaries of state and state, whatever, you know, there's going to be a whole narrative crafted about how the Republican party deals with uh, second rank officials and where they stand on Trump and all of that. My, my, my point here is that um, uh, Biden is having his, uh, his, his bacon saved for him uh, because through no fault of his own, he is not going to get through the agenda that will destroy him. And it will destroy him because, of course, it won't work. Uh, it's too much money, creates a gigantic budgetary crisis. And uh, the problems that the country will be grappling with, uh, though our friend David Bonson would, of course, disagree, that is like rising inflation and increasing public disorder will not be addressed by any of this. If anything, they will be accelerated by it. 
and so it's the dog that didn't bark it's the it's the crisis that didn't happen and running against somebody for for things that he said he wanted but th- that didn't happen uh that that's not a particularly good way to run a negative campaign or to say give us give us the reins of power uh because what you want to say is we have to get into power so we can undo what the other guys did. If the other guys don't do it, then there's nothing to undo. And then you can deal with a very likely circumstance that, at least on the surface, not in terms of public safety and not in terms of the growing deficit and all that, but on the surface of, of you know, hard macroeconomic numbers... Biden is going to have a good story to tell. We are we are standing on the cusp, uh, according to Goldman Sachs and various banks, of a gigantic GDP increase number. The next time we hear about GDP, at the you know at the end of the second quarter, like gigantic, like eight percent, nine percent, ten percent. Now again, it doesn't matter what that number is if people don't feel it, but I think they're going to feel it. They're going to feel it in various ways. Biden can take credit for it, probably falsely and wrongly, because of the CARES Act. But he can say we did it, and you know we were here. We also cleaned up Trump's mess, and we made that we stabilized things and whatever. And so he's at least not going to have to deal with the fallout of getting what he wants. That was Obama in 2010. Obama got what he wanted and had his head cut off, or uh, really spending a lot of time pushing for something that collapses but makes it clear who you are ideologically that is of threat, and that's Clinton in 93 and 94 with 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 Clinton's health care package, which, of course, never came up for a vote, collapsed. Uh, that chart that was drawn up by Ira Magaziner, who ran the Clinton healthcare project, which was this, you know, Rube Goldberg machine chart, if you've never seen it, you know, just Google magazine or chart, not magazine chart, magazine or chart. And you will see a document that you, you literally have to scratch your head and wonder how on earth anybody uh, with any common sense whatsoever thought that producing that document was not the was not an act of political suicide for for the Clinton administration. And not, none of that is really going to happen. With Biden, it, it appears, including, by the way, the voting stuff, right? We talked about the voting stuff yesterday with Chris Starwalt, I mean, uh, and, and the day before. I mean, the voting stuff, uh, even the, you know, the, the notion of saying that the Democrats have been, are trying to rig the rules to make sure that we, you know, blah, 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 blah. They're not going to get that either. So uh, Republicans can say it. Republicans can make a talking point out of Democratic efforts to steal elections and whatever to gin up their own base. I'm not sure that they're going to get any crossover effect for it if there isn't a real thing for them for them to vote on. So it's all going to be the CARES Act. And that, by the way, that, that could be pretty bad in and of itself, particularly with the labor participation numbers being so low and the unemployment insurance having had this uh, unintended consequence that uh, that. We didn't. We don't think it was intended, but that we certainly predicted. But John, I, I, I agree with all this, but I, I don't think there's any reason to think that Biden is done trying to be transformative. Um, this is so early. Um, you don't think there's going to be some other wildly ambitious proposal coming down the pike on I don't know the environment or uh, who knows what. 
There, there could be every possible yeah. crazy uh, proposal, and then Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema will make it impossible for it to happen. So he could see you could get two versions, and this gets to Christine's point and where the rubber meets the road here. Does he look like a failure because he proposes things that don't get through Congress, or all things being equal, is he is he does he get credit from the Democratic base that he needs for having tried? And does he get, you know, does he avoid the 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 meted out justice of the American electorate because what he tried never happened? But see, that this is where I, this is where I think he could be. Much will depend on what happens in twenty twenty two because he can't really argue obstruction. They control Congress. Democrats control Congress. So if he's going to say, "Well, I just wanted to do all this great stuff, but it's the Republicans' fault," well, how is that? How because his party controls the legislative branch. So I think that 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 messaging will only be appealing in 2024 if the Republicans have taken back the House uh, or the Senate in 2022, because otherwise I don't buy the obstruction message, which has been a really big winner for Democratic presidents who don't get their agendas through Congress many times over. But it doesn't doesn't fly here. Moreover, if the Biden agenda is so unpopular, why would he give the Republicans credit for stopping it? Well, surely he doesn't think that and Democrats don't think that. <clears throat> but if Republicans are going to message against this thing and Joe Biden says, well, they blocked it, they're going to say, hell yeah, we did. Okay, so let me give you this sort of uh, political science theory approach here, which is that uh, we have a we have a system, unlike uh, Europe and and certainly in Israel, which is a which is a test case in the in the opposite of what I'm about to talk about, in which uh, we do not have lots of parties. We have two parties. And this has been the structure of uh, the American government pretty much for a hundred and really since the Civil War, that we have two parties and the two parties trade off power. And therefore, that makes the parties coalitions. Sometimes they're geographic coalitions, sometimes they're ideological coalitions. You have bizarre coalitions like southern segregationists and um you know and and progressive liberals in the 1930s sharing in the new deal um you know that that kind of thing but the whole point is that they're they're coalitions over the last 20 years these parties have become less and less like coalitions and more ideologically cohesive what is going on with biden and the democratic party in 2021 is is the sort of like return of uh traditional American politics, though it is focused really on a couple of people. The Democratic Party has control of the Senate because it is a coalition party and not an ideologically cohesive party, because Joe Manchin is in the Senate, and he is a Democrat, and he is the only Democrat who could possibly be a Democratic senator from a state that Trump won by 40 points. He has handed them control of the Senate, but ideologically, he is not one of them. Now, he is not Ted Cruz. He's not Josh Hawley. He's not even Mitt Romney. He's a big government liberal in his own way, but he is not an ideological liberal. And so what's happening here is a kind of return to stasis or a return to normality uh, that the last 20 years have obscured and uh, and and we can actually see the virtue. This gives us a sense of the virtue of the old system, which is that it has a moderating effect not only on 
American politics, but it can have a moderating effect on the parties themselves because parties exist, as Noah constantly says, to win elections. That's what they're there for. And if to win elections, what you need is you need to get Joe Manchin. You need to have Maggie Hassan, who wins by a thousand votes in New Hampshire. You need Kristen Cinema, who won by twelve thousand votes or something in I can't remember in in Arizona. You need uh, and and Mark Kelly in Arizona also, who won by a, a small margin. You need people who cannot survive if the party goes too far, and. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I just think w- this is an interesting political moment. It's more interesting than we, I think, expected that it was going to be because we had such an interesting political moment for the four years of the Trump administration that uh, I don't think we ex- we thought this was going to be boring and it was going to be, you know, stasis and all of that. And obviously, in many ways, it's far more boring and far more static. Um, and Biden doesn't have the same personality as Trump. But Politically, it's pretty interesting. I mean, there's interesting stuff going on here on the margins, and we should move to the second interesting topic. Um, But before we do, I want to talk to you guys about how you sit and where you sit and as you sit all day in that X chair. You know what I'm talking about, the luxury supercarb office chairs uh, with that uh, uh, dynamic variable lumbar support that makes sure that you are supported in your lower back and that new XHMT technology that delivers massage therapy and heat therapy to your lower back gets right to your core. Make sure that you are comfortable. Make sure that you are sitting tall and sitting pretty and sitting tight in that chair as you work eight hours a day. It's the luxury supercar of office chairs. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference. And right now, you can get the X chair for $100 off if you go to xchaircommentary.com. At xchaircommentary.com, $100 off. Uh, or you can call one eight four 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 X chair. It's got a thirty day guarantee, complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as thirty dollars a month. Go to xchaircommentary dot com now and use code X wheels for free X wheel blade casters. Xchaircommentary dot com. Christine, talk to me about Representative Ilhan Omar uh, of Minnesota, if if you will, uh, if I must. Um, well. Ilan Omar the other day tweeted out a um, kind of open call for in human rights investigations into four entities, which were very clearly equated in her mind with with being war criminals, Israel, the United States, Hamas and the Taliban. Uh, if you read her tweet, she, she did a little video uh, of this and, and was, uh, you know, complaining about how the International Criminal Court needs to needs to take this seriously. So this, of course, and uh with good reason, prompted some consternation among uh, Jewish Democrats who had a had a call and decided they need to say something about this. Um, some wanted a pretty firm statement telling her this is not acceptable to equate, you know, terrorist organizations with with democracies and and their actions. Um, they ended up issuing a sort of watered down statement that urged her to clarify her remarks. So it was, I wouldn't even call that a slap on the wrist. It was just a statement saying, gee, we really think you might not realize people misunderstand your hatred of, of you know, Israel and your own country. 
So this is once again, though, I think it's it's shown how uh, a, a little while back when her anti-Semitic views were made very clear and she was unrepentant about them and no one in the Democratic Party did anything to call her out. Uh, she just keeps doing it. So she's done it again. And when she was criticized, when she read this statement that, that some Jewish Democrats issued, this very mild statement, she claimed, of course, once again, that she's the victim of Islamophobia. So it's it's just interesting to watch someone who, by the way, has, has as far as I know, not seen, not sponsored, she's co-sponsored a lot of legislation and she makes tons of public statements on Twitter. She's not a very effective legislator. She's one of these, you know, performers in Congress that, you know, we talked about the other day, someone who's using this, this uh, institution to further her own profile. Um, and she's doing a pretty good job of cowing her fellow Democrats when it comes to her, her extremely toxic anti-Semitic views. I mean, I think we should read uh, the tweet that she issued in response to this pathetic statement asking her to clarify her views, which is a pathetic, embarrassing, sniveling, cowardly effort by uh, Democratic Jewish politicians to get on the right side of, of, of an issue by pretending to be on the right side of an issue. Um, here's what she said. It is shameful for colleagues who call me when they need my support to now put out a statement asking for, quote, clarification, unquote, and not just call. The Islamophobic tropes in the statement are offensive, the constant harassment and silencing from the signers of this letter is unbearable. Unbearable. By the way, illiterate, harassment and silencing require a plural verb, are unbearable, not is unbearable, but let's just let let's just let that go to one side. Uh, you know, we can talk. Apparently, you know, it's fine that she's illiterate because she's a communist anti semite. So therefore, that excuses her uh, her illiteracy uh, as one of the five hundred and thirty five legislators in Washington representing three hundred and thirty million Americans who might be expected to have elementary knowledge of grammar. But I I. Uh, Maybe I, I go off the point a little bit here. Um, unbearable. It is unbearable to be asked for clarification when you say that the United States uh, is no different from the Taliban. Um, let's. But can I? Can I? Let me add. I actually think that this is part of why she gets so. Uh, she takes such umbrage at, at criticism. She genuinely believes there is no moral difference between Israel, the United States, and Hamas and the Taliban. She thinks they're all equivalent. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. If you look at her previous statements and you look at this one, she's she's really shocked that that anyone would criticize her for that. And a lot of her supporters say, "Yeah, it's true. We're we're just as bad as they are. Look at all the war crimes we've committed in our past." It it speaks to what I, Abe has talked about a lot on the podcast about how much people actually hate their country and feed off of a kind of criticism of the country that goes well beyond what's healthy for a for a well functioning democracy. Also, I suppose we should expect, <clears throat> given the way in which the jargon of the academy and um, you know critical studies and identity studies departments have leaked out into the popular culture, that people would start sounding like children. But she sounds like a child. She's speaking the way a child would, with just maximum emotional peak and affect, and just a, a manipulative emotional blackmail doing their best to avoid any substance of the accusation against them. She sounds like a kid. 
I don't think she sounds like a kid at all. I think she sounds like a classic it's political leftist provocateur um, who is threatening others in the guise of saying that she is being mistreated. Oh, it's the victimhood. It's the, 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 the woe is me does sound like a child. I think it's, it's, I mean, talk about unbearable and you know, <laughs> no one, and uh, I'm sorry. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people have yet to learn this lesson, but there's nothing less appealing than claiming your own victim status. Um, I, I, I don't think this, I, I don't, I don't, even people who are inclined to be sympathetic to her, I don't know how that, this, this actually helps her. But, you know, I have to say, this is one of those cases where, in a way, I'm glad that she hasn't been checked uh, in the way she should have been up till this point, because um, she needs to continue to expose herself, I think, um, because she is steadily making it clear that there is no question about, you know, that there never was for us, but but for some people there was a question about her anti-Semitism and her, and her anti-Americanism. Um, and I think it is just, it's going to continue to come to the fore. And that's important, actually. Well, and that it, evidently, according to reporters um, who listened in or heard, uh, in, uh, were reporting on the call that took place among the Democrats, there were some Democrats who really wanted to issue a much tougher statement about what she'd said they 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 fell back on the milk toast one um predictably but but it actually was heartening for me to see that there were some in her own coalition who were like enough already enough why does she keep doing this well right. we know why but right. maybe they need a right. few more instances as Abe says to know why to the point that noah made this is a really widespread problem among the media's treatment of anyone who with whom they're ideologically comfortable. I, I was up early this morning, so spamming all you guys with stuff on our text chain that I'd been reading. One of the things that caught my eye was a, a little Politico playbook summary of, of Kamala Harris's you know recent uh, overseas trip, and uh, you know they, a couple of her aides admitting ah she might have bungled a few things about the border and the way she talked about it, but they added the bar is just so much higher for a woman of color. So like the excuse making that that instantly taps into the victimhood narrative is there even in just mild reporting about her obviously bad interview that she did with Lester Holt. So it's every it's ubiquitous, unfortunately, now on on the left with regard to making excuses for people's behavior or or political bungling by by appealing to their identity. You know, and uh, so if the if, if there's a virtue in, in Ilhan Omar refusing to provide the cover to uh, other other Democrats by apologizing or sort of like looking to, to back off what she says and all of that because she is holding their feet to the fire. She is saying, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disavowing a single thing I say and call me next time you want my support. I don't know. I don't know what bill that's <laughs> for exactly, but let's just say she's talking about Steny Hoyer of the whip who calls her and says, how are you going to vote on X bill? Whatever it is. It's not just Congress though. Seth Mandel, uh, former commentary staffer, now uh, editor of the Washington examiner magazine has a piece in the July, August issue of commentary. And I want to read a passage of that piece, which will be out um, sometime next week uh, on the website. Um, on May 12th, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had castigated President Joe Biden on Twitter for expressing Israel's for expressing Israel's right to defend itself without noting what supposedly was to blame for the violence 
the expulsions of Palestinians and the attacks on, on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Her name and her statement were missing from the list of the Anti-Defamation League's list of slanders and slanderers. The Jerusalem Post Lahav Harkov asked Greenblatt, meaning J- uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, why? He answered, we've been speaking out pretty regularly, calling out individuals and examples of these uh, craze, the things I'm talking about right now. Any members of Congress lately? Harkov responded. I'll have to go back and look, Greenblatt said. That's a lie. Everybody in the world of Jewish advocacy knew what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had said on Twitter that day. It was the talk of the world. This guy is the runs the organization that is supposedly the leading exemplar exposer and attacker of anti-Semitism in the United States. And he was too cowardly and chicken shit and loathsome even to confess that he knew that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had said something. You know why? Because he's a Democratic political official whose job has become protecting Democrats against the anti-Semites in the Democratic Party. And if Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and these people remain vocal in their representation of these views, one virtue of it is that they make guys like Greenblatt expose their own true role in aiding and abetting what it is that they do. Ah, but there's one one other potential future wrench in the works of the spanner in the works for that. And that's this the other thing that happened this week was an open letter that was signed by a lot of journalists, including many mainstream journalists at places like the LA Times, the Boston Globe, or the the you know, the of course much beloved genius Nicole Hannah Jones from the New York Times. Um, and it's an open letter. It's called uh, an open letter on US media coverage of Palestine, and it urges something similar to what we saw with a lot of journalists uh, post-George Floyd, they're writing about race, this idea of embracing kind of uh, dismissing objectivity because objectivity is wrong now and embracing a kind of moral clarity about the conflict that elevates the experience of the Palestinians and uh, assumes the worst of the Israelis at every turn. And this this le- this open letter, is it's kind of shocking if you want to read it. And what it means to me is that, John, I think you're exactly right. But who, which reporter is going to actually hold his feet to the fire? <laughs> Who's uh, You actually need the media to play its, its uh, role uh, in an ethical way and ask these questions of people to point out the hypocrisies. And we know that it's already been a challenge for them to do that with regard to Israel. And this kind of letter where, where journalists openly say, I, I'm not going to be objective anymore about the conflict. I'm going to take a side. And that's what my reporting is going to reflect. That's very bad for the public's ability to be informed about what's happening. Or and, to assume that American mainstream journalism has a problem representing Palestinian issues in a sympathetic way. I mean, where have you been for the last <clears throat> half century? This yeah. is not exactly something that is, you know, that is that is you know, a new feature of the journalistic landscape. And the, the the problem that they're confronting now is that the narrative is increasingly unsupported. 
Can I read? Uh, I just want to read one of the things this letter says. It says, we are calling on journalists to tell the full contextualized truth without fear or favor and to recognize the obfuscating Israel's oppression of Palestinians fails our industry's own objectivity standards. So in some ways, it's even worse. They're claiming to be objective, but they're talk this new contextualized truth means that's their ideology simmered into the mix and then they spit it out and still call it objective. It's sort of horrifying. Yeah, one of the few things in life Life that does not need to be contextualized is truth. It is an oxymoron to talk about contextualized truth. Truth is uh, truth is truth. It, it does not. It is not. It does not have gradations. Narratives have gradations. Your truth and my truth. That's your truth. This is my truth. Those may have gradations, but truth does not contextualize itself. I'll give you a piece of contextualized truth if you want one right now. Uh, uh, after an investigation uh, or, or, or a final um, declassification of information. Now, of course, you can choose not to believe this to be true because it comes from Israel, but the IDF announced yesterday that the, the, the building that it destroyed during the, during the, uh, the last uh, rocket attacks that housed the AP and, and Al Jazeera offices that led the AP's outgoing editor, Sally Busby, to call for an independent investigation just before she went to the Washington Post, where she, which she will presumably now destroy. Um, that, uh, that, uh, uh, that building housed um, a, an, uh, either an office or a lab or something like that. It was the central uh, area zone in which uh, Hamas labored to counteract and and make ineffectual the Iron Dome defense system that protected Israel from the rocket. So Israel took down a military site uh, that uh, location that Hamas that was central to Hamas's effort to make sure that more Israelis were being killed. And that's contextualized truth for you. That is this building was a military operation using the cover of journalistic organizations. What we don't know is who in the journalist organizations knew this was going on. Because if you think that nobody That's why we need knew, an investigation. That's well, why this yeah. right. Well, we know I, Al Jazeera knew because Hamas just staged a photo op with journalists from Al Jazeera thanking them for their excellent coverage of the recent events. So yeah, short, yeah. Shortly yeah. after the conflict, I remember coming across... I forget her name, but she was an official with Human Rights Watch who had promoted this Arabic language report, which purported to quote a um, member of the Israeli Air Force who had said that his colleagues in skies were selecting targets to vent their frustration over the uh, volley of rockets that were coming into Israel. And that um, one of these targets, this particular building, was, was leveled in a fit of pique. You have to be so gullible, so naive, so consumed with prejudice to believe something that stupid and much more to, to promote it. You're, you're talking about this disregarding everything we understand about the, the target selection process, how lawyers go over this sort of thing, um, what, the, what the accountability mechanisms are after the fact, um, and, and the mechanisms often occasionally find fault 
with the way in which these things are conducted, but they are they're a fine tooth comb is used to select these targets. And the transparency afterward is is really exemplary. And so for you to not be aware of that or to subordinate that knowledge to this prejudice and to represent an organization like Human Rights Watch, you just you have to be just a, a flaming bigot. That's exactly that kind of a statement. That's that's what it is, because it, it speaks directly to the outlandish wickedness of the calumny against Israel, which which is when you come down to which is which is what that letter is about, which is what all this is about, which is that the Jews are hungry for Arab blood. They they love waging war. It's 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 what the guy from uh, Facebook's was Google rather Google's diversity Google diversity chief, chief yes. said right. I mean that 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 is at the end of the day the argument of of even if they don't say it um, as overtly as as the Google diversity chief said it. Um, the argument is Israel is doing this because they it just can't stop killing indiscriminately killing out of uh, this, this emotional need. And, you know, this, this, this letter um, where, where the, 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 the journalists now are like, you know, declaring to, to, to treat, to essentially to treat Israel at, at, at every turn as an evil aspect, as an, as an evil entity. Um, it's kind of almost strikes me as the sort of the beginning of a kind of uh, 1619 treatment of Israel, you know, well, um, I think Israel Israel got the 1619 treatment has been getting it oh, at least of in, course you know for for 30 or 40 years including by the way uh, you can say that Israeli journalists Israeli historians uh, were the authors of the 1619 project approach because uh, the new Israeli the Israeli new historians that started working in the 1980s went back to 1946 and 47 and tried to make it appear as though Israel was the aggressor um, in after the after the vote to partition uh, the, the the two states at the UN in 1947, that Israel was the aggressor uh, and was responsible for the um, for the fleeing of Palestinian for, of, of of the Arabs living in Palestine and you know massacring them, doing this and doing that and doing the other thing. Uh, when in fact, if they had simply accepted the partition plan, there would have been two states, one Arab and one Jewish, and what was Palestine. The, the Jews said yes, and the Arabs said no, and, and and started a war. But somehow then you recalibrate this and say, Israel was the independent, it was the original sinner here, right. because it was, because these were foreign elements on the land seizing it. Uh, that was an Israeli historic, that was a leftist Israeli historical project to delegitimize Israel and very much a kind of in chrysalis, a version of the 1619 right. project, I would say. I mean, I think the other thing about this letter is that it represents an act of a really astonishing misdirection, which is also part of what goes has gone on here, with particularly with this Hamas war, but also with the 2014 war, which is that Israel counterattacked. That's what happened. Israel, uh, Hamas, for its own compl complex political reasons, now, you can say that all the root causes of all Palestinian action are the Israeli oppressors. If you want to, that's fine. But in this, it's not fine. But, you know, it's, uh, let, let, let me just stipulate that that is, that is the root idea here. 
But stuff was going on within the Palestinian polity, broadly understood. A fight between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority over who should have power in the West Bank as well as in Gaza, who was going to have the upper hand. Was the Palestinian Authority ginning up stuff on the Temple Mount to uh, reassert its primacy after after its head having canceled elections that Hamas was theoretically going to win, and Hamas saying, "Well, I'm not. We're not just going to stand here and let you be the heroes of the new fight against Israel." And it started firing off its rockets. At which point, Israel had to respond, had to counterattack. Right. So, Israel did not start the war with Hamas. Israel did not bomb Hamas. There were, this was not unlike in the Six-Day War, in which Israel famously and brilliantly preempted the attack on itself uh in a in a you know in in one of the great moments in military history um Israel stood there and suddenly 4000 you know suddenly 750 rockets flew in part of Jerusalem in one day and then they had to respond when you say all we should talk about is Israel's oppression of the Palestinians you are misdirecting what happened in this 10-day, 11-day war between Israel and Hamas, which started because Hamas started firing rockets at Israel, period. Israel, there would have been no Israeli military action at Gaza had there not been rockets fired at Israel first. And so... Now you mentioned 2014, which is you know very also interesting because there was just a fundamental lack of curiosity over why... The conflict was limited to the Gaza's borders. It was described often in the press as a conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, but it was not. Right. It was not a conflict between right. Israelis and Palestinians right. because the West Bank was relatively quiet. And what this, you know, what this demonstrates is this letter is, you know, not is is to say, please abrogate journalistic instincts to be curious about this sort of thing. You can't be curious. You can't ask certain questions. You can't get to the to the meat of the conflict. The, what actually? What was the 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 impulse? The the uh, the episode that pre- pre- provided Palestinians with this opportunity to have this insurrection in the Al Aqsa Mosque? What led to that? And, and you know, I've seen you know regional reports that illustrate this pretty well. That this was called for by. Fatah by the Palestinian Authority after they canceled the election. So it's not as though that this isn't out there. It's just that you're not supposed to say it. Right. Well, and worse, they, it's re, I think it's much, it's almost worse because they're repackaging what they're doing, which is basically a thinly veiled propaganda as objective reporting. I mean, the last line of this letter says, we have an obligation, a sacred one, to get the story right. Every time we fail to report the truth, we fail our audiences, our purpose, and ultimately the Palestinian people. It, it's just bizarre to me to think that, that failing the Palestinian people should not be the, the concern or the objective of an objective journalist. It should be reporting the story. And it's not a sacred duty. Sacred is the wrong word to use here, except that they, I think, see this as a with the missionary zeal that a sacred crusade would require, unfortunately, for readers. Can I, can I take you guys on a little sort of like a pop culture uh, historical tour? So this is a weird thing that popped into my head, but it's sort of a funny story because it speaks to this idea in journalism and and sort of where it where it emerges from um and why it's a, a continuing fantasy of leftist journalists that the real purpose 
of reporting and all of that is the exposure of injustices and indecencies that will then allow the world to change. A movie was made in the 1980s called Under Fire. It's the only, I believe it was the only Hollywood movie made about the Nicaragua and the Sandinistas and the United States. And it's about a photographer played by Nick Nolte. Who And it's supposed to be like, you know, a Casablanca-ish, you know, raffish guy goes and, you know, he's a hard-charging war reporter. He goes to cover the story, right? And he has a romance with somebody or other. I don't remember who. And, you know, there's a lot of dust and, you know, Jeeps driving and dust. And then they're like, you know, evil fascists being, you know, you know saying clever apersus in a bar and all that kind of nonsense. The central problem for Nick Nolte is he is a war photographer, like he works for life or time or something like that. And at the climax of the movie, he is asked by the Nicaraguan leader of the, the communist leader of the Nicaraguan rebels to take a false photograph. He is supposed to take a photograph, and I don't remember the specific uh, terms of this, but he is supposed to take a staged photograph of a martyred Sandinista leader that will be used to advance the Sandinista cause and allow them to win their struggle against the United States. And he is called upon to drop his objectivity and his, you know, the purpose of being a news photographer, which is to photograph reality in favor of the higher calling of saving the world from this American depredation and, and allowing the Sandinista experiment in communist Stalinist brutality to continue. And he does it. And he, this is his, this is the central, you know, challenge of the movie, the moral conflict that he is asked the decision he's asked to make, like Rick Blaine at the end of, you know, is Rick going to turn Victor Laszlo into the authorities or is he going to help Victor Laszlo get out of Casablanca and take the love of his life with her, right? That's the conflict. And the conflict here is will Nick Nolte fictionalize a photograph to help the cause of international communism? And and he does so. And the movie, by the way, was a colossal failure. And it made people who covered it, who wrote about it, journal, you know, journalists who were, you know, movie critics and stuff, very uncomfortable because it was a, a totally naked, um, you know, a, a naked exposure of a of a central socialist realist idea, as though this was the higher morality. I only bring this up because this is a constant line of discussion on the left for more than 100 years, starting with John Reed, the, the, the communist journalist who went to cover the Russian Revolution, the subject of the Warren Beatty movie Reds, onto, onto Walter Durante and, and um, uh, who, Herbert Matthews, who covered Castro for, for the New York Times and all this. Are, is your work going to further the ideological mission of the international left, or are you going to be a craven coward and objectively help the forces of reaction? And what is astonishing here is the openly the open nature of this letter 
and how it is an open exposure of something that has been sotto voce for a hundred years and that um, if it happens and journalists who do this sort of thing like Seymour Hirsch, who has done it for, you know, did it his entire career, uh, of course, hide behind the idea that what they really are is just shoe leather reporters who are who are getting the the story without fear or favor, even though it might harm, even though it might seem to be critical of their own country. That just proves how much they love their country because they're they're using the standards of free speech to get get things through. And- yeah, no, they're claiming the moral high ground of ideological object. They're they're claiming the moral high ground while actually practicing, you know, idea propaganda. It's propaganda. Yeah. They're they're they're. It's very sophisticated in yeah. its in its messaging, but it's still propaganda. Uh, one thing to mention before we go: uh, we have just gotten uh, the May uh, inflation numbers. Uh, That's what we're calling them now. <laughs> Consumer yeah. price index is just just the inflation index now. Yeah, five percent in May, a jump of five percent May annualized. Prices rose 06 percent in the past month. Uh, largest in fleece, uh, increase in fleece, <laughs> largest fleecing. Uh, I was going to say that was a yeah, very Freudian slip. Yeah, since, uh, uh, since, since the Great Recession, and of course, if this continues this way, um, uh, and it is not, uh, is, uh, which, which it's a little hard to see how it's, how it's going to retard itself or sort of pull itself back. Um, you know, we are, we are going to see inflation numbers of a sort we haven't seen since the, since the 1970s, um. Uh, we should add that this was the only the biggest jump in consumer prices um, since last month, where consumer prices rose by 4.7% in April, yeah. which so, is also so, the largest yeah. increase since 2008. Yeah. So you're saying we're going in the right direction. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm like, if you want bigger, we're getting bigger. The only way is Everything's <laughs> bigger. The economy's bigger. Inflation is bigger, 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 bigger. So so we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Um We'll talk to you tomorrow for Noah, Christine, and Abe. I'm John Pothoritz. Keep the candle burning.